0: You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. We're in the book of Philippians as we're going through the Bible in a year. Uh, we're going to first start in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, which I believe is one of the most powerful verses in all of the scriptures. Uh, before we jump in, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll continue. Father, we are grateful for your word that you've given to us. What an act of grace it is that we have the actual words of our creator. Lord, as ask that we found faithful and good stewards of that reality. We ask with all the churches in our community as they gather today, as we know we're not the only ones who are doing this, that the name of Christ will be magnified in every pulpit in this community. Father, I'm so grateful for the baptisms we had a chance to witness at 9 o'clock and the other ones that are coming after this service. Just incredible. We know your word says that that kind of thing causes the angels to rejoice. So we're thankful we get to participate in such a party in heaven when we see such an amazing thing happen of the work you're doing in people's lives. We are grateful that it's all because of Jesus and Jesus alone. Please keep the enemy out of this place, out of our city. Speak to me this morning in the name of Christ. Amen. Philippians chapter one, here's what's happening. Uh, Paul had planted a church in Philippi, and now he was in prison because of his faith in another city. Uh, There was a lot of persecution happening towards the Christians. And these believers were had a lot of angst, Uh, they had a lot of, I guess you could say, worries, Uh, they had a lot of concerns about the direction of the church, what they're gonna do now. Their leader, Paul, the one who had helped plant their church, now he was in prison for his faith. And back then the prisons oftentimes were more of a house arrest. Sometimes they were actual jail cells, like we'd think today. Paul, it seems like from history, was a more of a house to rest kind of situation. So they were able to bring him some goods and exchange letters to him. So they sent a messenger with some gifts for Paul, some financial support, uh, some letters. And now he's writing them back to thank them, but also to help them to be clear on some important matters of the faith. To help them endure, I guess you could say, with so much anxiety. And this is what's happening here in Philippians 6. And here's what he tells, chapter 1, verse 6. And here's what he tells them out of the gate. He says, I am sure of this. Yes, I'm in jail. Yes, the struggle is real at this moment. Yes, there's doubts back in Philippi as so much persecution is coming your way. Maybe you're wondering if this is worth it. Maybe you're even wondering if this is true. That if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then how can Paul be in prison? And how can we be enduring so much? He says, brothers and sisters in Philippi, Christians there, from my jail cell, I want to tell you clearly that I am sure of this. There's no nuance. I'm not wondering. I'm not still trying to figure out. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you, meaning God, as we saw last week, before the foundations of the earth, when he predetermined that you would be purchased for himself, that you'd be forgiven of your sins, that Jesus would die for you, that he who started a good work in you, that God will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The one who started your salvation is gonna carry your salvation and is gonna finish your salvation. A way to summarize that verse is, you're in good hands. Because God is the one who is the author, the carrier, and the one who carries your faith to completion. It's easy to say, why does so much theology matter? Can't we just kind of like love God and love people and kind of go on our way and go on our business? Well, it's these kind of verses where theology is so important because we understand the lengths and the depths that God has gone to to redeem a people, that he started a work in us before the foundation of the world. And that same God is gonna carry what he started to the finish line of your life. In other words, what can the world do to us that's why Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if God's for us, then who can be against us? Why? Because he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And here's what he tells me, he keeps going. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Put me in prison for Christ, he said. I'm not ashamed of this. But now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly Honored in my body. We just saying, Christ be magnified. What an amazing song. That's my hope. I don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. I want Christ to be honored in my life. Whether by life or by death. Because Paul here knows he could face execution in prison for his faith. He's not exactly sure what his final sentence is going to be. And here's what he tells them: He says, Yeah, by life or by death, I don't know what's coming, but for me. Based on everything you've read so far, especially verse 6, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is so hard for my just American Western first world problems mind to grasp. To live is Christ makes sense to me. Let's live for Jesus, right? He's saying, "Yes, yeah, to live is Christ. If I keep living, if I'm freed from this prison cell, if I don't face execution, awesome. I'm gonna live for Jesus. And we're gonna keep planting churches and making the gospel known. It's gonna be good for all of us if I stay alive. But to die, which he could face, is gain. Is gain. Is it gain for his family and friends? Of course Not. Is it gain for Paul? He says, absolutely. Why? Because the point of life to begin with is to spend your life with Jesus. Not for nine decades on earth max, but for eternity. To live as Christ, absolutely. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep making the gospel known. But but to die would be gain. Why? Because I get to be with my Savior. And that was... Paul's sentence and he went to heaven, he wouldn't come back if he was allowed. Why? Because the ultimate goal of life would be realized. Eternity. And I know it's hard for my mind to grasp, but I'm sure it's hard for yours. People to say to die is gain. But for the Christian, we're not of this world. And the world's categories don't fit for us. The only reason we can claim to die is gain is because of the way that Paul mocked death in 1 Corinthians 15. Where he said, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? As in death, you do not have the final word because Jesus was victorious over it. Thanks be to God who's given us the victory through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I've this Friday will be my third memorial service, celebration of life, funeral in like ten days, and I I have done a lot of those in my life as a pastor and they're all in their own way, are equally are, are difficult because we're just, again, we're dealing with death. But I cannot even begin to tell you the difference. That doesn't mean less tears, it doesn't mean less hurt and less grief, but the difference in performing a funeral for somebody who knows Jesus, compared to someone who did not. I just can't even begin to tell you. Like when someone asks me to do a service and I find out that person was a believer, I cannot tell you the big internal deep breath that I take. Knowing that yes, we're gonna grieve, but we're not gonna grieve as people without hope. Why? Because maybe not for us in this moment because we miss our family, friend, whoever it might be, but for that person as a believer, gain. Gain. Because they're with Jesus. Paul's saying We're going to be okay. That's what he's telling them. We're going to be okay. Why? Because he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it in Christ. And then chapter 2, we could say, is basically the summary of the entire book. The book kind of, almost all the chapters before and after all point to this. And he says this in chapter 2, verse 5. Adapt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And on the surface, sounds great. That's like the least controversial verse you'll ever read. Be more like Jesus. Then he tells us through a poem using Old Testament language, especially the suffering servant from Isaiah, of what that looks like. He says, Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. We're talking about Jesus who is the son who has existed throughout all time and through all out history the one who is God himself, one God and three persons. What did he do? He did not leverage the fact that he was God for his own advantage and his own gain. Instead, verse seven, that's an important word, instead, here's the contrast, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, think Christmas, son born in Bethlehem, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, what did he do? What's the focus here? Notice the focus here is not on the lessons he taught us, even though those are really important. Notice the focus here is not on the miracles he performed, even though those are important. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. God himself suffering for the sins of his people. And then we see it flips. We see God, we see the son through all glory, through all eternity, preexistent. Then we see the suffering servant and then it flips again. God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's telling them, here is what Christ has accomplished. Here is what God has done. He has taken on the form of a servant. He didn't leverage the fact that he was God and he suffered. And because he suffered, Now he's exalted as the risen Christ. And he is the one we look to. He goes, think that way. Live that way. Have the same attitude as Christ. Let Jesus, what you know about him, be the very thing that drives your life. And he keeps going. He says, in addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Here's a guy from prison saying, rejoice in the Lord. He goes, to write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. So he's about to tell them something he's already told them in written form. They've already addressed this and talked about this, so it must be significant. And he sees it as a safeguard for for taking care of the flock, for watching over the church. So Paul clearly here, this is an issue he's about to talk about, that he wants to really make sure he drives home and the whole church is clear concerning. He says, watch out for the dogs. And he doesn't mean a stray pack of pit bulls out in the street. He's talking about false teachers here. So much for we are the world, we are the children. He's saying, Watch out for the dogs. Strong language. He goes, Watch out for those who, he calls them evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. They come at your ankles and they bite and they can devour the very flesh of the church, he's saying. This circumcision fight is still, ha- is still happening. We talked about it in Galatians a couple weeks ago. They're still dealing with it. People are saying you have to do these things in order to be a Christian. Rather than just faith in Jesus Christ, there are laws you have to keep and Jewish customs you have to accommodate, especially circumcision, in order to actually be right with God. The Bible would call this trusting in your own righteousness, in the works of man, rather than trusting in Christ. And he says, these people here, they're called Judaizers, are spreading this message. He doesn't say, make room for them, let's all get along. He says, they're dogs, they're gonna devour us, they're gonna affect our faith, They're going to mutilate our church, and we must make sure we're safeguarded against it. That might sound harsh, but the gospel is that precious and that important that it must be guarded by the church. He says this For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. He's saying we actually are the true people of God because our hearts have been changed. We don't put confidence in our own abilities, in our own righteousness, in our own religion. We put our, our confidence in Christ. Then in verse 4, he flips it. He goes, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. Paul's about to say, you think you're good? Paul was one in people before it was cool in conversation. It's actually never cool in conversation. Before it was a thing, I should say. This is fishing stories before there were fishing stories. What's happening here, he says, is you think you guys are the ones we should look to as the models of righteousness? He goes, by your standards and your Jewish upbringing, you think you have confidence in the flesh? Let's talk about me for a minute. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Imagine receiving this letter. And hearing Paul say that, at first it's going to rub you the wrong way, isn't it? I grew up in Florida, lifelong flirty, and I went to college in Virginia. Had never seen snow in my life. The first day it snows when I'm in college in Virginia, all the people who aren't from Florida, which is basically everybody else, run into my dorm room in my freshman year and wake me up to come see the snow. So I get, like, you know, bundled, every, like, heavy jacket I have I put on. And I go outside, like, kind of, like, waddling like this out into the snow to see it. One of the guys in our dorm was in shorts and a t-shirt. I'm just kinda looking at him, like what's wrong with you, man? And then others were maybe more appropriately dressed. I was like extreme on the trying to be warm side. Other guy was in shorts and a t-shirt, everybody else just dressed like it was snowing and they had experienced it before. So they all made fun of me, how I was dressed, so I was trying not to like, get frostbitten, not that could have happened, but I thought it could. And this is the sequence, so me, Everybody else that's kind of from Virginia, North Carolina area that's been in snow before, and the other guy. So I look at the guy and I go, what are you doing in shorts and a t-shirt? And he says, I'm from Wisconsin. This isn't cold. And I was like, excuse me. My dad and I had this joke <laughs> that it's always colder somewhere else. You can be like, man, it's really cold in Tallahassee today. Someone's like, oh, it's not cold. My family vacation's in Colorado. You know, that kind of thing. It's like, thanks. You know, it's like, Is this always colder somewhere else. This guy, any it would get cold, he'd be like, oh, this isn't cold. You should see what it's like in Milwaukee this time of year. We got 10 feet of snow, not 10 inches. And then someone in Wisconsin that's from Canada is like, this ain't cold. You should see what it's like in northern, you know, someone in Canada is like, I've been to Antarctica. This is not cold. You know, that kind of idea. That kind of stuff annoys us, doesn't it? We just hate those kind of conversations where there's always like another thing, right? Imagine getting this letter and they're like, who does this guy think he is? You're really righteous, but I'm more righteous than you? You think it's cold here? You should go to Wisconsin. Well, why would Paul take this angle he's about to take in the rest of the text? Because he had a point to drive home, and it wasn't, oh, look at me, I can endure the cold in shorts and a T-shirt. It was to see where their actual hope should be placed. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. This is a very Jewish custom, not even that. It's like varsity-level Jewishness here to do, to do this. He says, the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. He's telling them he's basically the Tom Brady of what it means to be Jewish. Like he's the elite. He says, regarding the law, you think you kept the law? You think it's cold here? Look at me, a Pharisee, the most devoted to these things. Regarding zeal, you want to see how committed I was to all this? I persecuted the church When I found out Christianity was starting and was gaining headway, you know what I did? I tried to stop it. That's how committed I was to all of these things. He goes, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, you think you're blameless. Kept it as perfect as you possibly can by the religious standards of this world. Gave his resume. You think you're good? But everything that was a gain To me, this entire list of my accomplishments, all of the righteousness that I could put in your face and just did, I've considered to be a loss, worth nothing. Why? Because of Christ. Because He is my hope. I'm not putting confidence in those other achievements, even though most of those things, minus the persecution, weren't bad things. I don't put my hope in those things. Why? Because of Christ. He's like, I'm going to keep going, more than that. I also consider everything to be a loss, everything that I've done, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, as in the two things cannot even compare on their best day. He says, speaking of this Jesus, because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. that I may gain Christ. These things were barriers in Paul's way because he had his religious checklist that were blocking him from actually seeing his need to be saved from his sins and that Jesus was the only one that could do that. He says, and be found in him, and this is so critical, not having a righteousness of my own from the law why? Because even if you keep the law pretty well, it doesn't fix the fact that you've sinned against God. And that sin separates you from God. And that sin deserves the wrath of God. Because so look at my list here. It's not through a righteous of my own, because that couldn't do the trick. But there is one available to me. I must look outside myself. And I can't have you be my righteousness, because you have your own sins to be accountable for. I must have one who has never sinned. So what kind of righteousness now do I bank on? Do I put my whole hope on? Not one that I can check boxes and accomplish, but on one that's already been accomplished for me by the work of Christ on the cross. And he says, one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Because I got new goals now. My goal is to know him. That's what my life's about now. Not impressing you, not managing my guilt, not checking the boxes, it's to know Christ. And how do I know him? And the power of his resurrection. You know, death, where is your sting? And, and the victory of knowing Jesus. And the courage I now have because the tomb is empty, but also in the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. It's both and. Like if Jesus suffered, why would I think that I'm exempt from it? In fact, the book of James tells us it's through our suffering, that Jesus is helping us to know him more, to identify with him more. So when I first read that and say, I wanna be you know, in his resurrection and know him that way, it's like, yeah, and then it says, and also in his sufferings, and it's like, whoa. But it's both. Why, because he's working all things together for the good of those who love him, even though it makes no sense to us often, unless we make sense of it in Christ. Because those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, to know him. What's happening here? Paul's letting us know about two different things. The first is what I just called religion without redemption. Religion without redemption, and if I could say what the biggest mission field in Tallahassee, where we find ourselves, where God has placed us, is, it is that right there. Religion without redemption. Are you religious? Well, yeah, I'm religious. You know, I'm spiritual. You know, I I believe in God, but that God, oftentimes, people believe in, is a very lowercase G God, kind of like the Force from Star Wars, a divine Santa, a glorified grandpa, a good luck charm, maybe a comfort on a bad day. More, more, again, more that sort of kind of distant force that every now and then you could tap into. Are you a Christian? Well, of course, I'm a Christian. What makes you a Christian? Well, you know, I'm a good person. I come from a Christian family and Paul would say, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee, tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. What does that look like today? Grew up going to church, had the Lord's Prayer memorized, had the best Christian nana you've ever met in your entire life, baptized as a baby. Don't cuss in front of little kids. Have a devotional on my phone. Get asked to pray at Thanksgiving because I say good prayers. What would Paul say to that? He'd say, none of those are bad things. But compared to Christ, those things are dung. Why? Because they don't save and they don't forgive sins. I think the biggest belief system in the world today is just that good people go to heaven. There's no context to that, we're not told what is heaven, uh, what is, what's the point of heaven, who's in charge there. All we're just told is that, that good people go to heaven. Right, you go to a funeral, what, you're, what, what are you told? We're just so grateful that Uncle Bob is fishing in the big bass lake in the sky, right? We're just so glad that grandma and grandpa are reunited again. He missed her so much, right? That's what we're told. Right now, we just know that cousin Steve is playing the big 18 holes in God's, you know, fairway. Or something along. Those are the things we're told. And could those things be true? Maybe. I don't, I don't exactly know everything that's in heaven. But that's not the point. What's their reason oftentimes for believing that? Uncle Bob's a great guy. Uncle Bob's a great guy. The book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 21, I think it's a very important verse for you to know. It says that if righteousness can be attained by keeping the law, then Christ died for no reason. Christmas is pointless. Easter is pointless. What we're talking about today is pointless. If righteousness can be attained by keeping the law, that's what Paul is saying, saying here. He's saying righteousness cannot be attained by keeping the law. But here's the issue. We need perfect righteousness to be right with God. Perfection. So what do we do? Appeal to our resume? Show you a picture of when you got christened? Put confidence in your confirmation? No. We look to Christ, who's perfectly righteous and freely gives to us what we could never achieve on our own. I wanna be just really, really honest. One thing that we do here is we just tell you what the Bible says. Like, I care about you too much to make it any less. Religion without redemption is on a nice, polished road to hell. It is. It's no different than atheism or agnosticism. It just points to different things. And by no different, I mean, it's the same degree of needing Jesus the same degree of lostness. I call them unsaved Christians. Meaning the things they would, they would claim to be a Christian, but the things they point to for evidence of that or their reasoning has nothing to do with actually it means to be saved. And I don't think I'm the judge of who's a Christian, nor are you, nor do I want to be. But God through his word is. And Jesus says there's a wide road that leads to death. But oftentimes that wide road is laced with religious checklists. And we have to be willing to speak through it and to be honest and say those are nice things but they don't account for the fact that you're a sinner who needs to be saved. But here's the good news, God so loves the world. No reason to worry. God so loved the world that he gave his only son righteousness for you if you will trust in him rather than yourself. Religion without redemption is destructive. But you know what? A relationship with the Redeemer, Paul says that's what's divine. Religion without redemption is destructive. A relationship with the Redeemer, that is what's divine. He says, I want to know Christ. That that's what this is about. I want to have a relationship with the Lord through his victory, through his death, through his triumph, through his suffering. Like, I, I want to know Jesus. I used to instead want to just feel guilt free. I used to instead just want to make sure I don't feel any shame or any, any pressure. And I had a system available for me. I could check the boxes and I could accomplish the things and as long as you thought I was okay, then all was well. Paul says, then I realized that I'm a sinner before God. So I don't need more religion. I need the Redeemer. And he says, I, now I have a relationship with him because I'm learning that this is far greater than anything this world has to offer. Then he tells the state of things. He goes, for I've often told you, verse 18, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. What does that look like? He tells us their end is their destruction. Their God is their stomach, meaning their indulgences is what drive them in their life, whatever they feel, whatever they want. He goes, their glory, it's, it's their shame. That's where it's found. Then he tells us, he summarizes what's actually happening here. He goes, they're focused on earthly things. That's what matters to them. They're just focused on earthly things. He goes, but us, those who have a relationship with the Redeemer, our citizenship is in heaven, as in we're supposed to think differently and do the world differently and operate differently. And we eagerly await for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what he's going to do? He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body, full realized redemption by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself, that he reigns over all things. He says we have a choice either in Christ, we have a choice every day, I should say. Either we're going to live for a citizenship of another place, or we're going to focus on earthly things. You might say, well, should I not care about my job and about my family and about providing and about... Well, no, no, I don't think those are earthly things because God calls us to make sure we tend to those things that we do provide for our families and that we do work hard and we do carry out our earthly responsibilities. I think those are spiritual things. We just have to make sure we just don't get sidetracked and they become our ultimate things rather than us doing those things as a response to the love of Christ in our lives. Then you get to the last chapter. Again, Paul's in jail, a lot of bad things happening, a lot of persecution, and he tells them this. He says, they're reaching out to him, what do you need from us? What do you need from us? He goes, I don't say this out of need. He says, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. It's like, seriously? He's learned to be content in any circumstance where he finds himself, notice the word learned there. In other words, it's not natural to be content. He's had to learn how to get there. He says, I know how to make do with a little. I know how to make do with a lot. He says, I've been in both camps, and he hasn't disparaged either one of those. Nowhere in the Bible is it wrong or frowned upon to have money. It's wrong or frowned upon to love money and to let it consume you. And money is relative anyways, right? It's funny, because no one thinks they're rich. You could like, be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and you're like the guy in Wisconsin, it's colder somewhere else, you think I'm rich? You should see this guy, right? No one thinks they're rich and everybody thinks they're generous. That, that's what I've learned in ministry. No one thinks they're rich and everybody thinks they're generous, which makes any conversation about money kind of complicated. So he's not disparaging how he's not saying, and also the Bible doesn't say it's wrong to be poor. Rather, it tells us how we're to care for the poor. We're told how our attitude should be towards the poor. He goes, so I've been there with a lot, with a little. He goes, in any and all circumstances. When things have been great for me and when things haven't been. I've learned the secret of being content. The secret how many paperback books are at Barnes and Noble right now trying to give you the secret to contentment? You notice what happens a month later on the 199 rock outside? Why? They don't work. They don't work. Paul says, I've learned the secret. It's like, wow, here it is. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, he says, I've learned the secret. And he said, I'm going to give it to you for free. Here's the secret of contentment. I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. It's like, wait a second. I thought that was about winning a football game. I thought that was about passing my law school exam. Wait a second. I thought that was about getting through this. Wait, hold on here. I thought that was inspirational for how I'm supposed to, you know, conquer my to-do list and my 2022 New Year's resolutions I mean, Tim Tebow, right? I black. He says, I've learned the secret to being content. I can only do it through Christ. On my own, are you kidding me? I'm always gonna want more. I'm always gonna think there's gotta be more to this. But I've learned the secret to contentment, and it's not go have a me day. It's not find a new spouse. It's not get married. It's not find a new job. The secret to contentment is finding Jesus. And not just stopping there and saying, I believe and move on with your life. But the daily, I guess you could say battle of actually believing the greatest thing that God gives us is himself. And one thing neat about Tebow wearing the eye black uh, that has different Bible verses, he played for the Gators, which that's unfortunate, but when he played for the Gators, he would have uh, different Bible verses as a quarterback on on his eye black. And they would say that whatever verse he had that night for that game on national television, the Google that night, like the Google search for that Bible verse would be incredible. I mean, like the whole country was Googling that Bible verse. They don't know what it's, they don't know what it says. And, and so if they ju- so I'm hoping, I, I just always have thought this before, and I've told a few friends this before, I've always hoped that in God's providence, again, I'm not God, but I've always hoped in God's providence that verse 13 is not all that popped up on the screen. That when someone Googled that, they saw the rest of the, the, rest of the passage. Where he says, I've learned the secret to being content. And it's a relationship with Jesus Christ but not just that relationship in a feeling sort of way, but actually believing that Jesus really actually is the greatest need that I have, and that God has met that need. Now there are other needs. The Bible doesn't say you don't need anything else, there's other needs. But unless Jesus is the actual point of it all, that's what Paul's trying to say. The rest will never get there. So what are we told? Do all these things, take these steps, then you'll be content. Paul's saying, Remember chapter three? I told you I've done all those, I've done everything. But it's all a loss compared to knowing Christ. I mean, could it be what Paul's addressing, which is clearly a big issue in the first century church, is still the greatest need today? Is chronic discontentment everywhere? It's what causes affairs. It's what fuels divorce. It's what gets you in crazy debt. It's what makes you not generous. It's what makes you leave friendships and try to find a new, better group all the time. It's what makes you tribal, to get that affirmation from an online crowd. Just more, 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 more. If you've been here for a while, you've heard me use this illustration before, but I compare what the world gives us for contentment. I I compare it to Juicy Fruit Gum. You put juicy fruit gum in your mouth, you know, the yellow package. Greatest three seconds of chewing you've ever had in your entire life. Then it's gone. The world never lives up to its hype. Never. Never. Starting with me, because I I, when I preach to around, I preach to myself just as much. Will we finally stop buying the hype of the world and actually believe that Jesus really is the one he claimed to be and is worthy of our very lives, the one who gave his life for us. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word, and we're thankful you gave us the secret to contentment and that it's clearly not found in ourselves or the things of this world. Forgive us when we look to earthly things to fill our souls when we've already been provided with everything we need, which is a relationship with our Redeemer. Lord, in this town full of religion without righteousness, Help us be bold to point people away from that cultural nominal Christianity and to give us the words and the courage and the compassion and the love instead of pointing people to Jesus. I thank you for the baptism we're going to experience today. We're thankful for the work you're doing here in this church. Lord, we ask for more of it. Lord, make your name known. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.